Great to see you and love being here. I want you to uh, hear something before I get started. Uh, and that's just a reminder of how much God has blessed the kingdom of God through the ministry of Cornerstone Christian Fellowship. And we couldn't, can't get into all of that. But I just want you to know that from my vantage point, I mean, what I do most of the time is just to interact with churches all over the place and connect with churches and help them get connected to one another and all of that. So I get to get around, especially in uh, southeastern central Pennsylvania, get around to a whole bunch of congregations and see a lot of what's going on in our region. And man, God has just used this congregation to bless in ways that many of you probably have no idea about. And I just want you to know that uh, when you as a congregation walk in faith with the Lord, and as you continue to pursue him in worship, and as you continue to pursue him with what he's given you, the ripple effects of that in the kingdom of God go well beyond what it is that you know. And so I just want to honor you and bless you, Cornerstone. You are awesome. You know, God is awesome, and he's worked through you guys in some really cool ways. And this is weird. This is awkward. But I want you to give yourselves, because of the Lord, I want you to give, seriously give God Give God honor and praise for what he's done through you and what he's allowed you to be a part of. All right? There it is. Someday I will uh, get into more of the specifics and give you some more stories about that. But Justin gave me a pretty clear time frame today. So there's a lot going on. Yeah, so keep it tight, Deering. So... Uh, I, I, I hit my timer here, and I'm already uh, into my time. So what I want you to do as we get started here is uh, I want you to think about what you find yourself wanting right now. And I don't mean like uh, I'm really thirsty right now, and I wish I could go get a drink, or I would just wish you would be, this will be a real quick sermon. Or I, and I, and I'm, I don't mean like what is the big goal of my life, uh, what I mean is just in general right now, as you walk through life, what's the thing that you find your mind wandering to? What's the thing that you wish you could change or you could have or whatever? The thing that you kind of are thinking about. And yeah, this isn't going to be put on the screen or anything. And, you know, to the extent that, uh, that we want the word of God to, to wash us, we need to be real clear and honest with each other or with ourselves rather. So I, I just want to ask you to think about that for a second. What's the thing right now that you think about, that your mind goes to? You're like, I find myself wanting that. All right, hold on to that thing. Hold on to it. We'll get back to it. We're going to be in uh, Acts chapter 12, first five verses. Last time I was here, you were in a series called The Gospel According To. And uh, I spoke about the gospel according to Peter. And it was the, the moment where what we talked about was how Simon was called out by God, by Jesus, and said that he was going to become Peter. He was going to be called the rock. But there was this transition for his life that was a really difficult transition, which is this self-made, strong dude who was the fisherman, who they all knew was solid, had to grow in his humility. He had to grow into a place of dependence. He had to become more like a child. And instead of seeing himself as strong, he had to begin to see himself as weak. And he had to see Christ as strong. And in that process, the more he began to confess Christ and stop depending on himself, the more he actually became the rock, Peter. 
And, and that was the gospel according to Peter, is releasing my own strength and trusting the strength of Christ. This is kind of phase two of that because the story that we're looking at right now is uh, in chapter 12 of Acts. What this is, is it's the moment when, I don't know if you remember this story, is when Peter gets locked up in prison again. He keeps getting locked up in prison and he keeps getting set free in weird ways. And this is the one where he's in prison and there's 16 guards and they're on rotation and they're watching him and they're chained to him and all this stuff. And he, there, an angel shows up, unshackles him, walks him out of the place. He thinks he's having a vision. He gets outside and he's like, whoa, this isn't a vision. I'm actually outside of jail. And then he goes to the house of the people where the church, where they're hanging out. And he goes and he knocks on the door and they're sitting there praying for him. And they, they, some little girl comes to the door and she goes and opens the door and she's like, ah, it's Peter, slams the door in his face, goes back and tells everyone, Peter's outside. And they're like, no, he's not. And they keep praying that Peter would be released. Peter knocks again. You know, and she goes to the door, and she's like, oh my goodness, I forgot Peter at the door. So she comes and lets him in, and everyone's like, Peter's actually here. Whoa, this actually just happened, okay? That's the story. We're not going to deal with that whole narrative. What we're going to deal with is the five verses that lead up to this story. Because what God's had me in this place lately where he's been uh, communicating to me about the transitions in the Scripture, where there's this story, and then it's this story, but then there's this little chunk that transitions us from this story into this story. It kind of sets the stage. And it's really easy to just kind of blow past those transitions and get into the meat, like the cool thing of Peter being set free by an angel. But there's so much to be gleaned in these transitions that say, what is the setting that allowed this amazing story to take place? What is that setting? And so it's five verses, and this is, I I think this is kind of the gospel according to Peter, round two. You know, this is when Peter is walking in faith and dependence, but he's not doing it alone anymore. And that, that Peter, uh, that, that Peter who has depended on God, that the word of that has spread and it's grown to another generation and it's gone out further. And now we're seeing a community of people beginning to own that same gospel message. And how that works. So, if you would, please turn with me to Acts chapter 12. 1 to 5. As we read this, I want you to think about two things reading this. I want you to think about desires and powers. So I asked you at the, uh, uh, just a couple minutes ago, what is it that you find yourself wanting? What is your desire? Well, in this passage, there's a few different groups of people. And I want you to think, as we're reading these five verses, who wants what? What does each person want? And then I want you to think about when it comes to trying to satisfy those desires, what power is being used? What position is being given? How are they chasing after those desires? Okay? All right. Here we go. Chapter 12, 1 to 5. About that time, Herod, the king, laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, 
he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. All right. What are the desires and what are the powers? There's at least three significant places of power and authority that are outlined in this scripture. There's three kind of groups of people that are, uh, that are the central characters, the central players in the story. Who are they? Help me out. Respond to me. Herod first. Who else? The Jews and then the church. All right. So there's Herod. That's the political system. Then there's the Jews, which is the religious system. And then there's the church, which is. So. Herod, what does Herod want? What's Herod want in this story? He wants to please the Jews. Now let's get, get a little backstory here, okay? The reason that Herod wants to please the Jews. Herod's grandfather, there's a bunch of Herods. If you read Herod in the scripture, chances are it's not the same Herod that you read in another spot. There's a lot of quick generations in the Herods. They don't last real long. Okay, and there's good reason for that. His granddad... Um, Herod the Great, you remember him? Remember what he did? He killed all those babies when Jesus was born? Great guy. And um, wonderful king. In case you're worried about our political struggles that we're in right now, let me also put in context the fact that uh, we are not the first to deal with all sorts of troubled political situations. Herod the Great was a ruthless, ruthless king. And yet there's always been this problem with the Herods, the dynasty of Herods and the Jews. See, the problem is, is that the Jews, according to Deuteronomy 17, are only supposed to be ruled by Jews. And he was a king of the Jews, and he married this Hasmonean queen. The Hasmoneans were this group of ruling Jews who, over, who were working to revolt against the government. From the time they returned from exile, when Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, when, when their time over in Babylon transitioned from, king Nebu- or, uh, from uh, Nehemiah and Ezra and those guys coming back to Jerusalem, rebuilding the walls and all of that stuff, and the Jews come back in and settle. From that time until Jesus comes, there's these revolts that take place. The Maccabeans and these revolts. And the ruling Jewish party was called the Hasmoneans. And there was this girl who Herod was pretty fond of. And he links up with her and gets married. And he becomes king in Israel. He's appointed king in Israel by the Romans, but he marries this, this Jewish woman. So Herod, the Herod that we're dealing with now is the grandson of Herod the Great and of uh, this woman who was actually a Jewish ruler. Now, the problem is, is that the Jews, there's been this deep tension with the Herods because the Herods always kind of want to be part of the Jews. As a matter of fact, they've assimilated into the Jewish religion. 
They've entered into the covenant. That means, you know, the guys had to go through some pretty uncomfortable things in order to enter into the covenant, if you know about the Old Testament covenant. And so even King Herod, you know, was willing to allow himself as an adult man to be circumcised in order to affiliate with the Jews and all of that. And so he wants to be a part of this community. And he's really trying to be. It doesn't help that he's killing babies and all of that. You know, sometimes leaders just don't know what they're doing when they're just trying to be liked by everyone. In this situation, the grandson has inherited a whole stigma of who the Herods are in Israel. And he's got a bit of an identity crisis, I would imagine. You know what I mean? Like he's the king of Israel And the people of Israel don't really recognize him. And yet he's Jewish by religion. And there's kind of this whole thing. And so he wants to really please everyone around him so that they like him. And he probably thinks that his power comes from the applause of the people. And so he wants to do what it takes to make people happy in order to be able to be who he thinks he should be. And in the midst of that, it's got to be really confusing when there's this whole thing of like, there's the moment where all the people love Jesus and then there's the the Jewish rulers who don't love Jesus and then there's this birth of the Christian nation or the Christian community that seems to be doing really well, but then there's the the Jewish religion, the, the leaders and that tension there. And when you're trying to figure out how to get everybody to like you, that makes things more complicated. But he finds the people of power among the Jews, the ultimate influencers. And so when it says the Jews in this passage, that's referring to the religious leaders. And he knows that ultimately they're the ones who sway the minds of the people. And he says, I want them to like me. So it moves us to the second group of people who are the Jews, the Jewish religious leaders. What do they want? Shout it out. Somebody said something. Power, great. Control, good. Status, yeah. They want things to stay the same, right? Where they are in control and they are in power. Everything should stay that way, right? Anytime there's disruption of that, that threatens my control. It threatens the status. They also want, at least they think they want, purity of doctrine. They think they want purity of doctrine, but the reason they want that is because that maintains the status quo and keeps them in control and in power, right? And the Christian faith at this point is a heresy in their mind. And if they got really, really honest with themselves, which they're not going to do, they would recognize that the reason that they are so intent on squashing this false doctrine is because they see it as a threat to their livelihood, to their position, and to their pride. But they're not willing to admit that because if they were willing to admit that, it would steal the power from their ability to justify what's taking place right now. Many of us have a hard time being really honest with ourselves about what we actually want and why those tensions exist in our life. I have a really difficult time being honest with myself about what I really want and why I'm so intent on certain things. I don't know about you. Sometimes if I get in a tizzy about something, if I'm internally struggling with it, you know, there's this thing in in Philippians 4. It says, be anxious about nothing. 
but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let the peace of Christ guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. These guys, man, they, they were like, life was good, but then there's the tension. What do I want? I want this craziness with the Christians to stop. It's going to cause all sorts of problems. We're going to end up with another revolt. Things are going to get messed up. It's just going to be messy. I wish it would stop. Herod grabs James and he kills him. And the Jewish religious leaders are like, that was awesome. The blood's not even on our hands. He's taking care of our problems for us. And we can kind of wash our hands and be like, yes. And Herod's like, they like me. My goodness, they actually like me. I got to find more guys like James and I got to get rid of them. Here's the thing that happens. When we want what we want and we don't stop to think about why we want it and we just chase the things that we want, what happens is, is people get hurt. It's always at the expense of other people when we chase our own selfish desires without thinking through, why do I actually want this? And is this coming from a place of faith? Is this coming from a place of worship? Is this coming from a place of prayer? Or is this me just going after what I want? And most of the time, when other people get hurt because of our selfish desires, we had no intention of hurting people. And most of the time, we didn't think that we were hurting people. As a matter of fact, somewhere in our mind, there's a mental block that isn't able to see the people that we're actually hurting. All we can see is what we want and going after it. But the ancillary effects, the ripple effect, is that people are going to be hurt because I'm just going after what I want. Whether that's King Herod or whether that's the Jews, James is going to die and Peter's next on the list. And who cares because they're just heretics anyway. What are the positions of power? There's first the political position of power, which is based on what? What gives Herod his strength? What gives him his power? What is it? Rome. Say it again. The sword. He's allowed to cut someone's head off. That's power. That's why. That's where all of his power, he thinks his power comes from people liking him. In actuality, the very power that he governs, that he wields, is the fact that he has this sword. The reason those people like him is because he has this sword. So there's political power that's based on the brute force that controls people by fear, right? And then there's the religious power. The religious power of the Jews, and what is their power? It's not in the sword, it's in the tongue. It's in the mind. See, the religious power has an ability to pitch a narrative that explains our life in a way that we're like, whoa, this is, this is what, oh man, God? You know, and it drops the God card and it puts me in a place of religious fear of like, what happens to my soul for eternity? What happens with the approval of God or the disapproval of God? And so between the political power and the religious power, there is all sorts of, of uh, wielding of position in order to gain desires. Each one of us has religious power and each one of us has political power. 
There isn't a person in this room who doesn't have some measure of being able to wield force or power with other people. And we all have things that we want to protect and we all have things that we want to gain. There's one other power and there's one other desire at play in this story. What's the third one? It's the church. What does the church want? Okay, kingdom of God. Somebody said something here. Real simple. I love this. This is the most simple thing. They want Peter free. That's what they want. It's like there's all these like, what do the Jews actually want at the end of the day? They don't know. They don't actually know what they want. They want to stay in power. Why? I don't know. They don't know. They just think that that's what they want. King Herod, he wants people to like him. Why? Who knows at the end? What does that actually get him? Very clear with the Christians what they want. Peter, free. That's what we want. Peter, free. Real simple. What's their power? What's their weapon? Prayer. Prayer is their weapon. And God is the one in the position. They don't have the position other than their position before God. My keyboard went out on my computer and I've had it for a long enough time that when I took it into the store, they were like, dude, (laughs) don't fix your keyboard. Get a new computer. Um, So I'm like, okay. So I get a new computer and I realized that since the last time I got a computer, so much has changed in the computer world. Um, And one of the major things that changed is that um, it used to be that everything only gets backed up on hardware. So you have an external hard drive that you put everything on. Um, Now, backups, so much of backing things up happens somewhere out here or here in a cloud or something. And man, when you're trying to transition your stuff from this old thing here to this thing here, um, now there's all these questions about like, do you want it on the cloud or do you want it here? Do you want it? And I'm like, what? And um, it seems confusing to me. And there's infinitely more possibility of when everything gets stored out here in the unseen world. It's accessible on, you know, my phone and a tablet and anybody else apparently who wants to look at it or whatever, you know. Um, So infinitely more possibility. And yet a whole lot more dynamics and a whole lot that I don't seem to be able to control. It's not just a machine right here. Not that I ever understood the machine anyway. But it's not just these simple pieces here. It's like all of this out there. Political power, religious power, economic power, they're all the hardware, right? They're the things that we see with our eyes and we understand if I want something, my boss is the one who can fire me. He's the one who can pay me. I got to figure out a way to please my boss so I can get the increase so that I can get the boat I want or the whatever that I want, you know? And so I want this. Here's the things I But then there's this whole other thing going on. And the whole other thing going on is that while the king wants this and he has a sword, and while the Jews seem to want this, but they have some influence over the king, then there's just the church who says in the midst of all that madness, we don't know how to be smart. We don't know how to necessarily figure out how to wield all the political stuff. We don't know how to move the pieces. We don't have all that. What we do have, is that beyond all of it, in the unseen realm, is God. 
And God says, what do you want? What do you really want? Here's my problem. My struggle is this, is that, okay, originally, God, what I want is you, and I want to see the advancement of your kingdom. In order for that to happen, I think this is what we need. And then in order to get those things that we need, we probably need this to happen. And then I start getting stressed out about the things that I need to happen so that we can get the things that we need so that we can spend more time with the Lord or do the things that he wants us to do. And I got hung up on these things down here instead of God saying, just make it real simple for me. What do you want? Ask me. Ask me. See, in this spiritual world that we can't see, that's beyond the political powers, that's beyond the religious powers, that's beyond the stuff that we're seeing, that's beyond the green in our pocket or that isn't in our pocket or whatever, there is a God who has invited us to upload our lives into the spiritual cloud of the kingdom of God. Okay? And in that kingdom, there's a whole different reality. And in that reality, what he wants is he says, instead of desiring what you want, I want you to desire what I want. And instead of thinking about what makes sense, I want you to believe what my word says. And that's why there's this amazing thing in in Philippians, in that passage that I read to you. I want you to turn real quickly with me to Philippians chapter 4, please. It says in verse 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say it, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. This is why it's reasonable the way I'm living out here is because God is at hand. I'm going to show people that my crazy spiritual life makes sense because God is at hand. How does that work? Verse 6, do not be anxious about anything. I can't control any of the situations that I'm in. I'm not the one wielding the power but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard what? Your hearts. What's in your heart? Yeah. What do you want? See, the first place the enemy wants to mess with us is he wants us to want things that God doesn't want for us. It happened all the way back in the garden and it happens all the time every day. It doesn't have to be that I'm wanting something real bad. It's just that I want that apple right there. You know, all it means is that instead of like saying, God, what do you want? And chasing after what God wants, I start to say, well, like God says that he will provide for all my needs according to his riches and glory and everything. But I don't want to wait necessarily for God to give me this thing over here that I want. I just kind of want that thing. And so I'm going to start thinking about how to get that. And I'm going to start thinking about my paycheck. And I'm going to start thinking about the relationships I have and the talents I have. And I'm going to start thinking about how to manipulate those situations in order to get this thing I want. Whether that's the promotion, the reconciliation in this relationship to go a different way. Whatever it is, this change that I want, I want that thing. So I'm going to figure out how to get there. And my heart begins to shift off of saying, what does God want? And my desire starts to focus on what do I want? And then secondarily, guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Because the second way, and the enemy loves to do this, he wants to change the way we think about how we get what we want. The enemy loves to mess with us by telling us that the way we should get that thing 
is from some sort of power other than the power of God. Moral authority in the spiritual realm is found by abandoning my desires and embracing God's desires. This is Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in a foreign world who let go of all the comforts and stand on God and say, we will please God at the expense of our own lives. And you watch the amazing authority that God gives to those men in a foreign land. If we are willing to say, I'm not going to chase my desires, I want to be about your desires, then our moral authority in the spiritual world, the the sword of the spirit, comes up. Our knowledge of the word of God then, so, so one is my desire comes up in the spiritual world because there's a moral authority in me where I'm not living immorally according to what I want. I'm living morally according to what God wants. I, there's righteousness. In, in James chapter 5, it says, The fervent prayer of a righteous man prevaileth much. It means that those who are in right standing with God, fervently pursuing God, that their prayer is powerful and effective. Why? Because in the spiritual realm, there is actually authority, rising and falling of authority. And that has to do with there's a design in the spiritual world. And in that design, as I live according to that design, as I submit myself to the desires of God, then what happens is, is there's the power to say, this is how it's supposed to work. And by prayer, I'm going to declare in the name of God, I know that this is what God wants. And he's the king. And I have the ear of the king. So submit. But if in my life, my desires are all over here, then my head's messed up, my heart's messed up, and I'm not clear, and I'm not strong, and I'm not confident in the spiritual world. In the mind, when the enemy says, you can have that thing. I mean, God wants you to do this, but in order to do this, you need this. So find a way, Tim, to make that happen. Ah, see the subtlety of the enemy? And then I'm in this problem because in order to serve God right, I need this. And I got to figure out how to get this. So then I'm now in a place where I have to use people maybe to try to get that thing. Or I have to use my finances, my resources, my talents in order to try to figure out how to attain this thing so that I can do this thing. Man, the enemy just loves to mess with us that way. Those are called spiritual strongholds, principalities. That's what that's called. When the enemy messes with our head and gets us to think the wrong way, where we're no longer dependent on God, but we are self-dependent. Because in Corinthians, we are told that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but are mighty to the tearing down of strongholds. And what that means is it says, every pretense or assumption that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And what that means is anytime I'm living as if God isn't the one in charge and he isn't the power, then there's somewhere in my mind I have been deceived and I'm living based on this stronghold. The enemy's got me. So now he can stress out my life and he can stress out the community and he can stress out our relationships by just messing with us a little bit. And we think, oh man, I needed things to go this way in order for this to happen, in order for this to happen. And somebody just messed that up. So now I'm frustrated and there's tension. And God's like, what are you talking about? The end game right here, all you got to do is just ask me for it. And you got to be patient, you got to wait, and you got to pray fervently and earnestly, but you got to ask me for it. And when you submit your desires to mine, 
you will be asking for the thing that I want. And God gets what he wants. He gets what he wants. All right. Man, I have so much more and I'm out of time. Um, so this is what we're going to do to close things up. Um, I want to ask you to go back to the thing that you desire. The thing that you find yourself desiring right now. Okay? And I just, I just want to ask you, when you analyze that thing right now, when you think in terms of what do I find myself wanting? What do I find myself wanting? I want to ask you, did that come from God or did that come from you? Is that something that God is birthing in you or is that coming from some other place? It doesn't have to be a bad thing if it's like, I'm not saying is it a good thing or a bad thing. I'm just asking, can you stand in the confidence of knowing the reason that I find myself thinking about thing, that thing is because God wants it. And one of the ways that we can kind of figure out whether that's true is what are we doing to try to attain it? If what we're doing to try to attain it is standing before God and saying, I know that you want this thing, so God, I am standing with you in confidence saying, let it happen. Or am I trying to find a way to make it happen? And if I'm trying to find a way to make it happen, then either I lack faith that God can make it happen or my desires are not in line with his in the first place. Here's one tip for Cornerstone Christian Fellowship, okay? Who was praying that Peter would be set free? Yeah, was it one person? No. It wasn't the desire of one person. Our desires are refined when we come together before God. So instead of saying, what do I want? When we are in line with God's heart, what we will find is what I want is the same thing that the rest of the church wants. Another indicator of whether or not my desires are in line with God is is my mind going to the same thing that the rest of the body of Christ's mind is going to on a regular basis, or is this just about me? And when we come together in prayer and the the power of being in agreement together, say we are the discerning body with God where we are in agreement together saying, God, what do you want? Then we stand in confidence looking at one another and being like, this is what we want for our city. This is what we want for our leader. This is what we want for that child. This is what we want. And so when we go to pray over that elementary school, here's the tip. Don't make it too ambient. Don't make it too elusive. Like just one thing. Pick one thing together. Say, as a church, God, what do you want us to pray for for that school? Give us that one thing that you want for that school. And then agree together as a church, we are going to hit the mat and we are not going to let go because the powers of politics and the powers of religions must fall to the power of Christ. And we are children of the living God. We are the priesthood of the believers. We are called out to be those who stand at the gates and say, open it up, God. This is what you want. We're going to declare it and we're going to go after it until we see Peter show up on our doorstep. I want to invite you, Cornerstone, to remember who you are in the kingdom of God. You are so special. You are so vital. 
What would have happened to Peter had they not prayed? Oh man, the theological discussion. Seriously, seriously. When the church does not pray, there is consequences. And when the church does pray, man, is there consequences. Beautiful, wonderful consequences. You are powerful. Upload our lives into Christ, into the kingdom, into one another together. This isn't just an individual exercise. It's done together in the home, in the church, fighting for the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God needs Cornerstone Christian Fellowship to continue to take seriously your role which is amazing. And you are amazing. And I love you. Let's pray. Father God, I just ask for the blessing right now over Cornerstone, that amazing blessing of we have experienced, I think most of us have experienced the moments where we were praying with other people and we sensed your tangible presence among us because we knew that what we were asking for was resonating with your heart and was resonating with your word, and there was the authority of your word, and there was a moral authority of your righteous, redeemed, blessed people joining together, declaring your word, and we sensed you there. And in those moments, when we sense your presence, we realize that everything else fades away. But when we've been distant from that prayer meeting, when we haven't been in contact with you together, pursuing your desires, all of a sudden the other things come to light a little bit more. And the other desires seem to be a little more appealing. And the stresses and the anxieties and everything else comes up. And so God, I just ask that you would make a flaming torch of a prayer meeting out of this community right here. God, we know that Cornerstone has been a church of prayer for a long time. God, we know that that has been, I mean, I remember when I served here, it was just, there was prayer happening. God, we just asked that you would set it ablaze and that the, the, it would not grow dim, but it would grow brighter. That the fire, that, that there would be a constant flow of people across this congregation grabbing a hold of one another and saying, can we pray together? Let's seek the mind of the Lord. Let's seek the heart of the Lord. And let's declare what it is that he wants in this place. And let's flow with our destiny as the children of the living God. Bless them in that, please, in the name of Jesus. Amen.